Welcome to Palm Vista, a Floridian paradise. All your dreams come true here. Every drink is served with ice. Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. Happy New Year to you all. I am Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. For our first show of 2022, the last show we recorded in 2021, we're going to talk to film critic Sarah Stewart about her favorite movies of the year just past. We're also going to talk to Daniel Cohen about the crazy year that the game show Jeopardy just had. And we're going to talk to Book and Film Globe contributor Scott Gold about season two of The Witcher out now on Netflix. We're featuring at the beginning this week a song from the movie Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, a delightful, wacky comedy. And here's a little bit of that right now. We'll be right back to talk to Sarah Stewart about her favorite films of 2021. concluding our year in review series this week and we're talking to film critic sarah stewart who picked her top 10 movies of 2021 hello sarah how are you hello i'm good how are you i'm fine so yeah so you know it's kind of a weird year at the movies right i mean we didn't really return to pre-pandemic viewing but movies did open in theaters and there there was some enthusiasm for them Yes, I think it was, there was a feeling that they were coming back a little bit, although there's just a shift that I think may uh, keep on for a long time, despite people like you uh, arguing against it, where people just are kind of calculating the risks of going to the movies and deciding that they would rather just stay home and binge series on Netflix. Well, and also there's the fact that people have better quality TVs. And no, there aren't that many movies that have to be seen on a big screen anymore. I mean, obviously, like the Spider-Man movie was a huge hit. And Dune, I saw Dune on IMAX. And, you know, they're, they're definitely like are movies that people will either take the time to go see in public or take the risk, as you say, to go see in public. But I, you know, there's definitely the shift toward um, smaller scale viewing. And that was probably happening anyway. I think the pandemic just uh, exacerbated the trends. I think that's true. And I think in a lot of ways, that's good. You know, as I said in my article, I I think that it makes it more affordable for people to see a lot of movies. You know, they've just gotten so expensive. If you're, you know, a group of four going to the movies, you're going to drop a hundred bucks all told, you know, whereas you can rent a video on demand for, you know, maybe $20 for the ones that have just come out, but still all things being equal, it's, it's pretty affordable. And, and also not to be overly curmudgeonly, but I do think that people have just gotten progressively worse at being at the movies together. People seem to really like to talk to each other during movies. They like to text. And for people like me, I would prefer that they just do that at home rather than next to me in the theater. Now when we talk about movies, we don't talk about going to the movies. We're basically talking about standalone pieces of content that are not uh, serialized. So you you picked the top 10 uh, standalone pieces of content that are not serialized. And I looked at your list and I've actually seen six of them. So we can talk about them somewhat intelligently. Uh, you know, I mentioned Dune and you put that on your list. Uh, that was that is sort of a, a big ticket brainy sci-fi. And you, you were a big fan of this one. 
I was a big fan of it. I mean, I'm, I, I am a fan of the book. There are things about the David Lynch version that I enjoyed, but I think that this is certainly a superior adaptation and was something I'd been looking forward to for a long time. I'm somebody who really enjoys a huge epic movie. And, and I thought that this really delivered for this director in a way that his Blade Runner sequel really did not. I, I sort of had that same level of anticipation for Blade Runner 2049, which I thought was just a snore. And I thought that what he did successfully with this one was sort of marry his beautiful visuals and sound design with an actually interesting plot and twinkles of humor. Yeah, I didn't love everything about Dune, but yeah, I agree with you that, you know, first of all, you had Jason Momoa doing his usual swashbuckling thing, and he definitely, like, brought the serious level down a bit. And also, Rebecca Ferguson, as uh, Timothy Chalamet's mother, I thought was tremendous in this. She was terrific. She was maybe the best thing about it, although I, I do think that Jason Momoa was used perfectly. I think he is better as a character actor than maybe in a leading role as, say, Aquaman. Right. One thing I appreciated about your list, you know, if you look at a lot of best movies of the year list, a lot of times it's movies that no one except for film critics who have been to film festivals have been able to see. And you didn't do that with your list. I mean, there's a couple of those choices, but, uh, you know, you, you chose uh, Nia DaCosta's remake of Candyman. So I, I appreciated that, even though I myself didn't see it because I'm easily scared. <laughs> I'm easily scared, too. I did go into this knowing it was pretty gory, but I, I do think that there's a certain amount of snobbery among film critics, especially with the horror genre, that they're just not even going to consider anything coming out of that vein uh, for, you know, serious best of end of the year list. But I, this was a really interesting take on Candyman, and I thought that it did some really interesting things. Director Nia DaCosta she takes it and makes it very topical, uh, ties it in with the Black Lives Matter, I thought really smartly. The mantra of the movie is say his name, which, of course, is the way that you conjure Candyman out of the mirror. But then also interspersing the, you know, fairly typical horror story in some ways with these shadow puppet representations of the history of violence that has created this boogeyman. And it is violence perpetrated against black people by white people. And it's represented really simply by these shadow puppets, but it's done wonderfully and it's really horrifying and disturbing and, and stays with you. I almost saw it. I almost went to see it, but I just, I couldn't bring myself to do it, but it, I, it, do, it does sound really good. Now, uh, also on the sort of populist end of things in your list, you, you pick West Side Story, Steven Spielberg's remake of West Side Story, which, you know, it's, I, I've seen that on, on quite a few lists. So I, I saw the, this West Side Story and, you know, I, I will admit that it was, it was lushly made and it had some great supporting performances. You know, Mike Feist and Ariana DeBose in particular were, were terrific in it, but I, I don't know. I, it left me feeling just a little bit meh. But were you meh about the original? Like, is it oh, the content or? I mean, I love the music and, you know, and I, you know, I, it's one of those things that was just a part of the uh, background soundtrack of my life. I had parents who had a lot of Broadway albums and, you know, I, I certainly am very familiar with the material. You know, to me, it seemed like just kind of the best possible community theater production of the show. <laughs> For me, it really, it changed the musical for me. I, I know it from growing up, but I was never a big fan, actually. And I thought that he did some things with uh, the material that just were not present in the movie. And you know, obviously, I've never seen the original Broadway show, but I thought what he did with the Puerto Rican community in this one, sort of making it much more authentic, uh, primarily by actually casting 
Latinx actors rather than white actors in brownface, which there were many in the original movie. And also just just making the gang violence actually seem rather violent in between all the leaping and dancing, which I just thought was a really electrifying blend of musical camp and and genuine upsetting uh, violent moments. The one thing I, I would say that it did do is it, it made the In the Heights, which everyone was really looking forward to, pale in comparison. I mean, the, the, the music is so much better. The lyrics are so much better. The, the story has a lot more emotional resonance. Agreed. And, and I also want to say Tick, Tick, Boom could have been swapped out on this list with West Side Story. I thought that that was another musical this year that was really tremendously done and, and a little bit, I think, a little bit niche just because it's it's so much about writing a Broadway show. Uh, it's a story of Jonathan Larson, who died uh, right before his rent opened off Broadway. But Andrew Garfield gives such a tremendous performance in that movie. So that's an, that's an honorable mention for me. It might have been a good year for musicals, but this was also the year of Dear Evan Hansen. Never forget. <laughs> no, never forget Evan Hansen. Good Lord, what a terrible musical. Speaking of musical uh, numbers, there are there was at least one Bafo musical number in Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, which was is also on your list. You know, that's a I mean, that is a movie that never got to the theaters. It was scheduled to come out around the time that the pandemic hit and then it just kind of faded uh, onto streaming. But it is, it is just such a um, hilarious and delightful and goofy comedy. It is, it is by far my favorite movie of the year. I've become a real evangelist for it. I've, I've watched it I don't know how many times, and my husband and I have been introducing it to as many other people as we can. It's such a wonderfully done, genuinely silly comedy, sort of in an 80s slash early 90s style that I think very few movies do these days, and, and certainly very few of them get it right the way this one did. It's just any given three minutes from this movie are absolutely hilarious. Performances from Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo, who, who wrote the movie together, and even side performances like Andy Garcia's Tommy Bahama. And uh, uh, I think it's Marlon Wayans, a, a spy who's really bad at being a spy. And Jamie Dornan as the, uh, the love interest proves that he can do more than uh, look blank in the Fifty Shades of Grey or uh, terrifying in the fall where he plays a serial killer. I, I can't recommend it enough. I think it's the movie that we all needed this year. And I don't think nearly enough people know about it. Yeah. I love, uh, I love this movie too. And it, you know, it's just, uh, it's just absolutely enjoyable to watch. It's like one of the, it's like a Saturday night live sketch movie that actually gets it right. Even though these were never Saturday night live sketch characters, but they, they could have been Barbara Stark easily could have been. Sketch oh, characters. exactly. A lot of what Kristen Wiig did on that show feels like it kind of all comes together in this role for her. And, uh, and as a side note there, there's another great Saturday night live thing going on right now, which is the McGruber series, uh, which if you haven't seen is also incredibly hilarious in that, throwback 80s way uh, that I'm really enjoying. All right. Uh, and then um, on the sort of more serious end of the movie spectrum, you picked uh, Nicolas Cage's Pig. I, this is a movie that I also thought was incredibly good. It's such an interesting performance from Nicolas Cage. You know, when you hear about the movie, a former star chef's truffle hunting pig is stolen and he vows to get her back. It, it sounds like yet another ridiculous over-the-top scenery-chewing Nicholas Cage performance. But, uh, you know, for every dozen of those, he gives one really great, thoughtful performance and, and he hits it out of the park. I mean, this movie is really surprising. It's thoughtful. It's kind of quiet. There's not not very much violence in it other than a, uh, a chef fight club uh, in Portland, underground Portland. 
when that scene hit, I thought we were going toward uh, John Wick territory, and then they pulled back. I mean, it, it has this really delicate balance of it, it's very sweet, it's very mournful and melancholy, and a little bit funny at times. And he gives a couple of of really great speeches about sort of the the state of the world, and it was a surprising thoughtful sweet movie and again I, I think what really united all of these movies on my list was that it, it stayed with me and i thought about it a lot all right we're gonna have to do a, a lightning round for the rest of them so petit moment uh which is a, a french film directed by what, celine how do you pronounce that shyama? Shyama? shyama i loved it yeah it's it's very different from her last movie it's much smaller in scale but you know it, at, at its heart it's I can't really tell you the story without spoiling it all, but suffice to say, wonderfully naturalistic performances from these two little girls. And and it's a 76 minute running time, I think. So a really humane running time. And then you've got The Lost Daughter directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal. And that's an adaptation of the Elena, one of the Elena Ferrante books. Now, didn't they do uh, an Elena Ferrante miniseries on HBO? Is, isn't this the same source material? The adaptation uh, of the series was the Neapolitan novels. Is that right? Yes. This was a, another novel which explores uh, the very dark side of motherhood with Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley as a younger version of her. And it, it's this woman sort of on vacation by herself, thinking back on her relationship with her daughters, which is fraught to say the least. And just amazing performances from both of them. And uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut, it is a really taut, expertly done sort of exploration of parts of motherhood that I think you don't see or hear talked about very much. And then we have uh, the Kurt Vonnegut Unstuck in Time documentary which we've discussed already on this show, but you, you you liked it enough to include it on your list. So we'll re-recommend that. And finally, we're going to have a, a short two-minute argument about Power of the Dog, directed by <laughs> Gene Campion, which Stephen Garrett and I have already talked about on the podcast. Now, I'm not a um, Power of the Dog fan, as, as you know. I do know that, yes. And I, I loved your argument against it. I heard it, I believe it, and uh, I, I see what you're talking about. But I think despite how, how unrelentingly bleak it is, uh, despite, you know, you, you could call it pretentious, you could call it one note, but I just think the performances here, Benedict Cumberbatch particularly, as, uh, as this cowboy with a lot of, uh, in, in 1920s Montana, with this repressed uh, gay cowboy character, and Cody Smith-McPhee as this kind of uh, effeminate young man that he targets, for all kinds of bullying until it kind of turns into something else. It's just so well done. I mean, Jane Campion, um, you know, she's got ice in her veins, clearly. This is the kind of stuff she loves. And it's a really a murder thriller at its core. And I think when you finish the movie and you put together what's happened and you think back on how expertly she sort of drops these clues into place along the way, there are sort of two levels to it that make it, really exciting to watch and rewatch. Uh, I'm certainly not going to rewatch it. I, I will. I, I understand that this is not a bad movie. <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously like there's a difference between a bad movie and a good movie that, that you don't love. And I, I that's how, that's where power of the dog falls in for me. You know, I, I can't recommend it wholeheartedly. I mean, I, I just imagine being at a party if there ever is a party again 
and somebody's like telling you that you must watch Power of the Dog. I don't know. I'd much, I'd rather talk to the person who's telling me uh, they I, I need to go watch Barb and Star. <laughs> <laughs> I think the essence of movies is that you need both. You need one and you need the other. They balance each other out. Or you can talk to Sarah Stewart who'll tell you you need to see both as well as a bunch of other movies. And Sarah is one of our expert film critics at Book and Film Globe. And I will, we will be uh, hearing more from her and talking to her again in 2022. Sarah, thank you so much. Happy New Year. Thank you, you too. Those of you who listen to this program and those of you who don't listen to this program probably know that I was once a contestant on Jeopardy back in 2013, and I remain one of the show's most fervent fans online and off. Uh, Daniel Cohen, also a former Jeopardy contestant, always a uh, frequent Book and Film Globe contributor, covers Jeopardy for us, and he's here now to talk to us about the year in Jeopardy, which is, I would say, the craziest year in the history of the show. Hello, Daniel. Hi, Neil. How are you? I'm fine. So, yeah, like like I said, I mean, this is this year has been absolutely batshit bananas when it comes to Jeopardy. I mean, it started off, as you mentioned in your piece, which is on the site. There were even a few Alex Trebek episodes that aired at the beginning of 2021, even though he died in 2020. That seemed like one of the craziest things to think about when I was looking back at the year was the fact that he's still technically the host in January. And and it, it seems strange to think about that because of you know how protracted his illness was and how long we had to prepare for it. But it's like all of the tumult that's happened since, you know, since his passing, that's all 2021. It's a single year. And, 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 I, and I can't imagine that there's been a, a year that's been filled with more drama in the show's history than this one for, you know, worse, mostly. For worse. Yeah. Well, you you know, obviously the uh, the first half of the year was completely consumed by the quote unquote search for a new Jeopardy <laughs> right. host led by Mike Richards, who is the, um, you know, the, the greatest villain in the history of Jeopardy. Basically, he was the show's executive producer who took over for a guy from a guy who'd been doing it for decades. And then Alex died on his watch and he proceeded to uh, introduce all these guest hosts, many of whom were quite terrible. Many, 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 many of whom really were terrible. The ratings plunged. There were there were people that were in hindsight, you know, either grossly unprepared or unqualified to do it. And and yeah, eventually, as, as everyone knows by now, I'm sure he looked long and hard under every rock in game show world and decided that the proper choice was uh, himself. It's like when Dick Cheney chose himself to be yes, the vice exactly. president <laughs> of the United States. And it was very similar. But unlike Dick Cheney, Mike Richards lasted a week. He lasted a whole week as host, official host of Jeopardy! Because Claire McNear from The Ringer did her homework and found, you know, he found a bunch of questionable stuff that right. he had said. And kudos to Claire for doing that. You know, and, and the immediate question that that raises is, Gee, it's really interesting that nobody at Sony did any due diligence to that effect either, because it wasn't like this stuff was hidden. If you had the stomach to listen to, you know, Mike Richards entertainment podcast for hours at a time, you could come up with some really questionable comments that he's made in the past, essentially, you know, insulting everyone who could be insulted. They obviously weren't paying attention and they didn't care. And they figured he just was going to do it. He he had he either had photos of someone or just or had the ear of, of someone. And he just he took it down and then he was gone. They had to bring in uh, Mayim Bialik as this sort of emergency fill in. Well, she was going to co-host it with him anyway. She's going to do a bunch of primetime specials and tournaments right. and whatnot. There was always this plan 
under Richards to do this like large brand extension and start doing primetime specials and new kinds of tournaments, which they've done. They did a professor's tournament a few weeks ago. But one of the, you know, quote unquote solutions to the hosting controversy was we're going to name a second host to do all of this primetime stuff under Richards, essentially, who's going to be the permanent guy, which didn't really do much to address the issues of continuity that they, they ran into during 2021 with all these guest hosts. Right. So instead, what they've done is they basically split it 50-50 between Maya Bialik and Ken Jennings. And, you know, Ken Jennings has been hosting the show for a few weeks now and you're watching it. And you're like, well, why didn't they just do what everyone thought they were going to do and name him the host as soon as Alex Trebek died? He's per- he's he's very good at it. He, he, he knows the game better than anyone alive. And it, just, it feels it felt natural that Ken Jennings would end up being the host of Jeopardy. It was almost inevitable. Well, a year ago, it seemed like the obvious choice. And and I think that there were questions about Jennings' own past and some of the comments that he'd made and, you know, uh, ableist tweets that he'd made in the past, which were totally justifiable things to complain about. But it also felt like to me that they were almost doing the guest host for the sake of doing it, where they're just sort of bringing in people from various media properties and sort of B-list celebrities and that kind of thing. We didn't really have any sort of connection to the show. But theoretically could, you know, increase its curating and branding among among whoever, you know, if you're if, if you're if you're a football fan, then well, let's turn in for Aaron Rodgers or, or whatever. If you I love mean, Good Morning America, <laughs> if you love Stephanopoulos and Robin Roberts, if, if you love if you love green coffee bean extract, here's Dr. Oz. Exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so basically the hosting situation has been a disaster, but it has sort of stabilized. And then then there is this weird contestant controversy, which you only hinted at uh, in the piece where there is a, a guy. His name is Kelly. I don't remember his last name. But, you know, the, this idea among the Jeopardy community, that this guy was throwing white power signs on TV. It was encouraging the Proud Boys to riot or whatever. There was, right. That was a weird little in, interstitial. It was a really strange moment in Jeopardy. I mean, it, he didn't really. I, I think wisely he didn't do a whole. He didn't do a whole lot to address it besides just sort of a, a blanket denial of whatever he was alleged to have done, and it sort of faded away really quickly. But it, I, I think it's a pretty good metaphor for like how disjointed and sort of messy things were in the first half of last year, where it just seemed like there were. People looking for, you know, ways to recriminate whatever they could recriminate and sort of looking for like strange layers of meaning and things like this. And and it when there's that much sort of brouhaha going on, you know, under the surface or behind the scenes, it, it, it really does detract from what makes the show so good. And I think in, in hindsight, like just going with Jennings, which was the obvious original choice. And, you know, some of the strengths of the contestants we've seen the last half of the year has brought back stability that wasn't there for six or eight months or so. Along the way, suddenly the old Jeopardy began to reassert itself when the gameplay got interesting again. You know, Matt Amodio came up in the middle of the year, yeah. late late summer. And, uh, you know, this is a guy who won the second most number of games in Jeopardy regular season history. I mean, he was a buzzsaw, unlike, unlike anything we've seen in years. And I think that his run sort of in hindsight looks looks way harder than than anybody realized it was at the time. Like he's going through all these different hosts. I think he was on with five or six of them for you know two weeks at a time, which is two taping days, barely enough time to really get used to anybody's cadence or, or weird proclivities. And the fact that he sort of managed to do that, I mean, is is totally unprecedented, right? Because it's it's getting used to Trebek is was one thing, and getting used to Robin Roberts and Joe Buck is one thing, another another entirely. 
the, the thing is that, you know, Matt Amodio had this amazing run and then he was unseated by a guy named Jonathan Fisher, who, you yeah. know, I watch a lot of Jeopardy and obviously Jonathan Fisher is a, a is a good player. You know, he, he beat Matt Amodio and he won 11 games, but it got me sort of thinking like, what happened to the contestant pool? I mean, you never, and then, and then Jonathan Fisher lost to a guy who won a bunch of games in a row. And it's just like, is the contestant pool just really thin? Did people stop studying or paying attention during COVID? It, it was the whole thing was bizarre. And then out of nowhere comes Amy Schneider, yeah. the historic Jeopardy contestant in, in that she is a you know, transgender. Um, and also someone who has won an ex- is the fourth, you know, winning this player of all time suddenly, you know, and, that, and that's at the end of the, of this crazy year, you have another mega super champion and you've never seen that where there've been two champions like that in one season. No, let alone with that, that little distance between them in terms of who was in the middle and, and, and the fact that most of the contestants that won in the meantime between Amodio and Schneider uh, were five-game winners. I mean, there were only a few that weren't. And, you know, Amodio's tenure with the show coincides with the season break, right? So it goes from season 37 to season 38. It transcends the Richards thing entirely. You know, he's on with Bialik at the end after everything has sort of been done, done and dusted. And, like, there is a question, which I, I think is, is, is kind of impossible to answer without being very much on the inside, which is like, did did something change between 37 and 38 beyond just the, you know, controversy about, about the hosting and the, and the EP at the top? Do they cast it differently? It's hard to say. I mean, we don't know that because we haven't been involved in the process. But what I will say is that the people that were people were involved in casting for decades and were casting the show when you and I were on, the contestant coordinators are no longer employed by Sony and, and Jeopardy. They were either fired in the case of Glenn Kagan, who uh, has an age discrimination lawsuit pending against Sony, or, or his counterpart, Maggie, who retired. These people have been there since the 80s. I mean, these people had run the show essentially during the entirety of the Trebek era, and they were synonymous with it behind the scenes when it came to picking contestants. I mean, if you if you auditioned for Jeopardy enough times, you knew these people because they were there every single time you went to a hotel and took the test. Right. And they're not there. And the people that are there may have different priorities, maybe looking for different things when it comes to contestants. I mean... I think that's that's totally reasonable, but whether or not they intended it to be the case, there definitely seems to be two things happening to me, which is the absolute elite contestants that they've brought in are really good. Maybe maybe better on mass than anybody we've ever seen in sort of in sort of one fell swoop, like you said. Whether or not the reverse is true and that the the weaker contestants are weaker, I mean. Well, it's hard to say. I mean, the thing is, even a weak Jeopardy contestant, so to speak, still is the best player at their local pub trivia night. Right. Yeah, you've got you've got to pass all kinds of tests just to get there. And it's it's I, I wouldn't want to say anything that would malign anybody who didn't do well on the show because it's very easy to not do well on the show. I didn't do well on the show. Believe me. It's- right. And you are, uh, I'll, I'll admit it, you know, probably a better trivia player than me. You know, Thanks, s- s- seven out of 10 games, you probably win. But, you know, and I did better on the show. So it's like it's um, it's just some of it's just kind of random. But uh, on the other hand, you know, it's like it does seem kind of strange that there have been this many super champions right in a row. You f- I feel like, you know, the, a lot of the games have not been that competitive. But that's not a bad thing as far as the show is concerned. And and the ratings sort of bear that out where they declined pretty steadily for the first half of 2021 and only began to rebound when Amodio was on the show. Well, like Alex Trebek always said, it's the contestants who are the star. And when the contestants are compelling characters, the show does well. The host doesn't really matter all that much. And, you know, Matt Amodio and Amy Schneider in particular are very compelling characters with a lot of media savvy and who are obviously very smart and, you know, play uh, Jeopardy at the highest level. And that's what people tune in to see. People who really love the show tune in to see. 
I think so. And it's it's funny because you always hear about the criticism of, of a person who's been on the show, no matter who it is, for an extended period of time. There are always, you know, social media haters who find it boring when somebody wins 20 games. And and I, I think that those voices may be the loudest ones in the room, but they're very much the minority. I want to see them lose. You want you want to see the super champion lose because that's such a because it's such an entertaining game when that happens. Yeah. Oh, of course. It, it, it's, it's a very satisfying feeling to see, you know, the, the, the king get taken down. But it also I've watched the show so long and those runs are what I really look forward to personally. Well, weeks and weeks of one day champion, two day champion, three day champion. And then suddenly someone catches fire. Right. I don't know. There's something inherently interesting to me above and beyond the actual game about like how far can this person go? Because if you know what it's like behind the scenes to actually be on the show, you realize how grueling and taxing it is to do five episodes in one day. Right. And also just to, you know, to, yeah, just to be able to recall like that amount of information for that long with that little sleep and under the bright lights with you know, people buzzing around you at all times. It's a crazy situation. Right. With hundreds of thousands of dollars in the line, potentially, too. I mean, it's, it's a level of stress that's very hard to um, replicate, replicate in, in almost any other you know, quiz show or any, any other sort of trivia environment, for sure. It is. It's the greatest sport on earth, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and, and you and I both play it uh, at a sort of amateur professional level uh, online and off. But I guess so. the, the, the final question is, and I, there's no way to really determine this until there's a tournament of champions. And this is going to be one of the great tournament of champions of all time. When it finally yeah, clearly. Who do you think is better, Amodio or Schneider? Because they are, I mean, both like super players. I think that it's hard to compare them apples to oranges here because their their knowledge bases are clearly different. The thing that strikes me about Amy Schneider is that she's almost never wrong on Final Jeopardy. And that's typically a very good indicator of somebody who's going to make a lot of money relative to the context of the show. Her stats are far better than Emodio's so far. I mean, she's played half as many games. But if I had to put them you know, face to face, I, I would give her a slight advantage just based on the fact that she plays the game with a much more killer, hold sourish mindset than he does. He's, he's much more conservative when it comes to, to wagering, for sure. He's faster. Yeah, for sure. But I think I think I think that sort of that level of fearlessness can get you really far in a do or die type situation on the show. Yeah. At the same time, though, he's no dummy and he's watching what he's watching how she plays and he's got to adjust. That's that's just it. And and, and the thing that, that typifies those really elite contestants is an ability to adjust and play the metagame on a level that's not really possible for a generic Jeopardy player. I, th I think the, the best of the best can make those adjustments unconsciously and, you know, really put the time and effort into thinking about the game beyond just trivia and sort of applying other players' play styles and, and, and making those adjustments, which is very hard to do, by the way. Yeah, it's hard to do, especially when you, you know, this is not something that you do. It's not like they're doing this every day. But hey, Daniel, isn't it a relief that we're actually sitting here talking about Jeopardy gameplay and not dithering about who the host should be or why or what this person said or what that person said, that we're actually just talking about the sport of Kings again? It is. And I, and I think that the, I, th I think that pretty much everybody's happy about that from viewers, contestants, producers, anybody that's involved with the show. Like regaining that element of trust with the audience, I think, is the single most important thing they could have done this year after losing a lot of it. It speaks to the quality of the game and how, how robust an institution it is that it, it didn't take them very long to write the ship once they got Richards out of, the, out of the picture, you know? Yep. Jeopardy is back and uh, it's on pretty much every day. Check your local listings and you'll be able to see it unless the president gives a speech or there's a plane crash or something. <laughs> It always it airs at four o'clock where I live in Austin, <laughs> and, 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 and I'm always like, oh, really? Did the trial have to give the verdict at four? 
See, it's on it's on at seven thirty here and it's almost always preempted for NFL pregames on Thursdays, so I, I never have any idea who wins. The trials of Jeopardy fans. It's good to have those those old problems back though. Daniel, happy new year. Quiz with you soon. All right, buddy. See you later. Last week saw the debut on Netflix of the second season of the popular fantasy series The Witcher, starring Henry Cavill. Scott Gold is our resident Witcher expert, and he is here to talk to me about season two, which he has watched in its entirety, possibly twice. Hello, Scott. Hey, Neil. Great to be back. Good to have you. So, yeah, so you um, gave a very comprehensive rundown of The Witcher. Now, you're a big fan of this. You, you, you're familiar with the video games and the novels. You know this universe. I do. Not as much as some. I actually haven't delved into the novels yet, but I've put something like 400 hours into the games if my computer is to be believed. So I am like neck deep into Witcher stuff. So you understand exactly what the uh, strengths and weaknesses are of of the show. You know, my wife is is a big Witcher fan and she watched it so fast. I didn't even know she'd started, except that I heard like extremely loud screaming and booming coming from the living room. <laughs> Very loud show. It's very loud, um, but it's also very beautiful. Uh, The action sequences are great. For a serious swords and sorcery kind of fantasy series, um, it also manages to be fairly breezy. So it is utterly bingeable. Yeah, I only watched the first episode of this season. It's sort of a they do this sort of thing. There's this overarching plot line about houses of that fighting each other that I, I I really like. I don't care about. I can't get into. But what I love about The Witcher is there they do this monster of the week thing. You know where these these terrible monsters appear in The Witcher. The Witcher is like this um, immortal mutant played by Henry Cavill who had, who who is sworn to slay monsters. Essentially, I don't know if that's exactly the way it goes, but that, that opening episode I thought was amazing. It was really wonderful. And the interesting thing about it is so the first season was adapted from a book called The Last Wish, which is a collection of short stories in the Witcher universe that I think was maybe published after some of the more, you know, typical, you know, long narrative fantasy novels, which is why it seemed very episodic. And the cool thing about this season is that that first episode was also drawn from a short story, which is why it seemed a little bit different than the rest of the season. And I think a lot stronger because it was a lot more self-contained. And it seemed like in the game, you know, in the games, you have these, you know, side quests, some of which are really amazing that don't necessarily have anything to do with the main objective or the overarching narrative. And then, you know, you wander upon the side mission where you eat mushrooms and talk to your horse for half an hour. Right. Now, this was the first episode was sort of a a dark fantasy take on the beauty and the beast uh, genre. And there's a lot of action. But but then the overall plot involves the Witcher, who he has this magical girl, I guess, that he's adopted or something. And she's extremely powerful. And I don't care about any of that stuff. But that's apparently where the controversy comes from. This this Cirilla Siri, however, you you don't want to say Siri too loud because your phone's going to start yelling. Right. Geralt has kind of adopted Siri is as a, she was his child surprise. So he's kind of Ger- bound Geralt to her is, by fate. Ger- Geralt is Geralt of Rivia, the Witcher. Yes. Yeah. And as you said, Witchers are these kind of magical monster hunters that have long life and special abilities that allow them to fight and hopefully kill monsters. But 
in the Witcher verse, it's kind of funny because they're basically glorified exterminators. Like it's a very like blue collar job. And a lot of the, the hoi polloi don't really like or trust the Witchers. They're always like struggling for cash. And it's kind of funny that way. But Geralt, you know, being Geralt gets involved with like high politics and, you know, sleeps with a bunch of sorceresses and stuff and manages to be bound by fate to this girl who unbeknownst to him is of a very magical bloodline that culminates in her being this franchise's version of like the Kwisatz Haderach of Dune, you know, like the uber person who can either save the world or completely destroy it. And so with power that great, of course, everybody wants a slice of it. And Geralt's on daddy duty and his job is basically to kind of protect her. And it's really fun to see this kind of gruff loner who's been, you know, used to sleeping in the countryside and fighting monsters. And all of a sudden, you know, his paternal instincts are kicking in and we get to see him like try and cope with being a dad to a a moody teenager nonetheless. So even with all of the fantastical elements in, there's this very human story about a guy just trying to be a dad. And that's important because, you know, who is the magical being? You know, there's this thing going on in the Wheel of Time, too, where it's like, who's the dragon reborn? And I'm, I, my answer is always, who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm not a fantasy fan. But, you know, these shows kind of distinguish themselves as to whether they're good or bad by the performances and the pacing and the action. And all of that is there in this the pacing is generally great. One thing this season definitely learned from the premiere season is that it is one continuous, straightforward narrative. There was a lot of flack thrown at the show and the people who wrote and produced it in the first season because it skipped around various timelines without any clear indication of that's what they're doing. That's why I quit. I quit because I was watching the first season with my wife and I was like, you know what? I hate disjointed narratives. I hate multiple timelines. I, I do like the character and the setting is cool, but I just, I just couldn't do it. But apparently I dropped out too early. It really did take me a second binge to really pick up on everything and for it to fully make sense. Obviously, if someone's just an armchair fan, I can totally understand how one would be very confused as to what the hell was going on. But that said, there's still Henry Cavill, who's brilliant. Costumes are awesome. The scenery is great. The monsters are super cool. There's great action. And I think the second season does definitely improve on the narrative aspect and it makes it easier to kind of get in and say, "Okay, everybody's trying to get Cirilla. Geralt's trying to protect her. Here a bunch of monsters and fight scenes and uh, maybe a couple of boobs thrown in every now and again. Yeah, I mean, it's fantasy. You got to throw throw in a couple of boobs. You can even do a, a, like a male butt shot, too. Yeah, you need to cover your bases. Uh, there wasn't as much nudity in this season, if that's important to anyone, as there was in the first season. And certainly nothing close to Game of Thrones. And a lot of people are throwing this into kind of the, the Game of Thrones comparison, which I don't think is completely apt. I think this is closer uh, in lineage to Xena Warrior Princess than it is to Game of or Buffy the Vampire Slayer than it is to Game of Thrones. I mean, it's so arch and pop and cheesy in some ways. I mean, I, I get that it's good and I get why people like it, but I wouldn't put this like in the realm of quality TV in that way, which is fine. It doesn't have to be. It's a sword and sorcery franchise. It's like very pop. It's a popcorn muncher. If you're looking for armchair entertainment, they have it in spades, you know, swords, monsters. If you want to get a little bit deeper into it, that's where I think this uh, Netflix series has a few problems because it doesn't fully succeed in kind of the deeper political intrigue and the relationships and the romance in the ways that the books and the games do. 
but that said, I think the show is a success. I think that's clearly told by how popular it is and how well it's doing. And Netflix is just going to keep rolling with it until, you know, people stop watching. And I'm fine with that. Until Henry Cavill's abs deflate. Let me tell you, the Witcher fandom absolutely loves Henry Cavill. And if he weren't part of this show, I think it would absolutely crumble. Uh, he loves the character. He's deep into the games, like to the point where like he's building his own gaming PC. Yes. And, yes. You, know, like, you know, like the fans are loving it. And he actually advocated for certain uh, aspects of the character and the story that were not in original drafts. Who would have thought that Henry Cavill's signature role wouldn't have been Superman? but would actually be Geralt of Rivia, the Witcher. It's a really strange uh, turn. It's, it's as though um, Christopher Reeve had like abandoned Superman to become Conan the Barbarian or something. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Uh, but he's so good in the role. He has yeah. really made it iconic. He's yes. physically perfect. He has a sort of dry humor to him. And, uh, you know, he really embraces the role because in a lot of the first season, he didn't actually get to say a lot. That's another thing that Cavill advocated for. He said, he said you know, I think we should literally hear more of what Geralt has to say instead of a lot of grumbling and, you know, moaning. Given that he's the only name actor in the show, you, you'd think that the producers would listen to him and, and that they have. Now, I wanted to add one more thing, Scott. My wife is a big Witcher fan and for Christmas, I got her a Wild Hunt pendant with a wolf on it, like a 3D Wild Hunt pendant, and it has glow-in-the-dark LED eyes. Wow, that is super cool. I feel like that's that elevates me to almost husband of the year status. Oh, yeah, you totally win, dude. And then she tossed me a coin. So, all right, <laughs> um, Scott, thank you so much. We will talk to you soon. All right, thanks a lot, Neil. All those lonely miles that you run. All right. Thanks, Scott Gold, for talking to me about season two of The Witcher. There are Witcher fans out there. Please do not cast a spell on me or fight me. I am not a monster. We're closing this week with the epic banger song from this season. Last season, it was called Toss a Coin to Your Witcher. This one is called Burn, Butcher, Burn. Check it out. The music from The Witcher is always good. Also, thanks to Daniel Cohen for talking to me about the year in Jeopardy. What a crazy year it's been. I think Amy Schneider is still the champion. And thanks to Sarah Stewart for talking to me about her favorite movies of 2021. I look forward to talking to her about her favorite movies of 2022. And I look forward to having you all tune into the show for the rest of the year. I'm Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe www.bookandfilmglobe.com the greatest entertainment site the greatest entertainment site on the planet in the galaxy in the universe in the witcherverse wherever enjoy enjoy i'll talk to you soon